The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. This dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it. We can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. So I thought we'd begin tonight by becoming still. So why don't we plant ourselves in our seats in a way that we feel supported and just simply placing both of our feet on the floor and sitting back in our chair, perhaps allowing our hands to rest on our laps and close our eyes. And just take a few moments to bring your awareness to your body, to bring your attention to bodily sensations, and perhaps the thoughts running in your mind. Just simply notice how you are feeling at this moment, this very moment, in this place, in this room, in the company of others. Just allow your awareness to include sounds and aromas. Perhaps notice the warmth of the room. And continue to just settle in and relax. Now bring your attention to your breath without doing anything to it, without manipulating it in any way. Just notice breathing in and breathing out. And really begin to notice the sensation of breath as it enters your body and exits. Again, there's no need to manipulate it in any way. <coughs> Just simply notice how it feels to be breathing now 
receiving breath, releasing breath. Now you can take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. This time when we do it, again, be consciously aware of the sensation of breathing deeply and holding it for a moment before you release it and the experience of releasing breath. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale and relax. Stay with an awareness of your breathing without excluding without excluding an awareness of all other sensations the sounds in the room how it feels and the aromas and continue to breathe deeply and holding your breath before you release it again do that three times, just relax on the third and go back to your normal breathing. you a question or two. There is no right answer to either question. What is important that you notice the first <coughs> thought that comes up for you. And just simply notice that. Let it go to be open to the next question. And simply notice your answer to that. Again, there is no right answer. There just is the answer that surfaces for you. And it's important that you just notice whatever that is. But for now, just continue to breathe slowly, comfortably. And again and again with each exhale, relax, relax, relax.
who are you? Who are you? Does your life have meaning? And what is that? So again, just simply notice the first thing that comes up for you without negotiating, without questioning, without doubting, without judging or criticizing. Just simply notice the answer to, your, to the question that I've asked. Who are you? Does your life have meaning? And what is that? Try to retain your first answer before you begin to negotiate and try to change it. Just notice what that was. And continue to follow your breath. Underneath all we are taught, there is a voice that calls to us beyond what is reasonable. And in listening to that flicker of spirit, we often can find deep healing and renewal. This is the voice of embodiment, calling us to live our lives like sheet music played, and it often speaks to us briefly, especially in moments of deep crisis. Sometimes it is so faint we mistake its whisper for wind through leaves, but taking it into the heart of our pain, our discontentment, it can often open the paralysis of our lives. This brings to mind the story of a young divinity student who was stricken with polio, and from somewhere deep within him came an unlikely voice calling him to, of all things, dance. So with great difficulty he quit divinity school and began to dance. And slowly and miraculously, he not only regained the use of his legs, 
but went on to become one of the fathers of modern dance. This is the story of Ted Sean, and it is compelling for us to realize that studying God did not heal him. Embodying God did. The fact of Ted Sean's miracle shows us that dance in all its form is theology lived. This leads us all to the inescapable act of living out what we keep in, of daring to breathe in muscle and bone what we know and feel and believe again and again and again. Whatever crisis we face, there is this voice of embodiment that speaks beneath our pain ever so quickly. And if we can hear it and listen to it, believe it and respond to it, it will show us a way to be reborn, to awaken. The courage to hear and embody opens us to a startling secret that the best chance we've got to be whole is to love whatever gets in the way until it ceases to be an obstacle. So often you hear me say that for most people, as a cultural conditioning, we tend to think of spirituality as a means of vacating our lives, most especially those parts of our lives that are difficult and that may even frighten us. Yet, authentic spirituality, true spirituality, is not a vacation, but rather a vocation. It is a calling to reawaken or to be reborn once again in the state of mind and consciousness we, every one of us without exception, were originally born into. At the moment of our birth, it is a fact, and I don't mean alternative fact, that all the evidence proves that we are born with both a conscious and unconscious awareness of who we truly are. We are born with a conscious and unconscious awareness of all of our inherent qualities, among them being love, relationship, interconnectedness, interdependency, compassion, and most certainly, wisdom. Often you have heard me say that at birth we bring with us an inherent hardwiring to not only survive, but to go beyond survival, meeting every single one of the challenges of our life with what I call all victorious mastery. All of the evidence shows that this is true with very few exceptions, often those pathological exceptions where disease or some kind of terminal illness of some sort starts at birth for the being. Somewhere along the line, 
another fact, all the evidence shows that we forget that awareness. That we enter into what the Buddha called a kind of amnesic state of consciousness. We literally enter into the illusion of life. We enter into the illusion of life and spend a lifetime of delusion, if you will. And during that period of time, when that moment happens to us, where the transition from awareness of who we truly are, awareness of what life really is, when that transition from that to what the Buddha called in the Second Noble Truth, ignorance of our true nature happens, we set out living lives of imposters. We set out becoming everything and everyone we are convinced, for one reason or another, will help us survive in the world. Ego is born, and it, in its birth, it becomes designed, or its design purpose becomes exclusively not only the survival of the being, but anything and everything the being considers itself to be. So not only do we take on the roles of imposters, not only do we take on the role of being everything we think we should be, if only we were, but that role becomes at least in the optical delusion, as Einstein referred to it, becomes essential to us. We come to believe that apart from that role, apart from being that person and doing those things and making those choices and taking those positions and having those beliefs and opinions, we come to believe that we are not good enough we are not capable enough, and we are certainly not worthy enough. And all the evidence again shows that at birth, none of that exists for us. And so in our forgetfulness, we fall into again what the Buddha called this kind of amnesic state of existence, forgetting who we are and what our purpose is. And as I said a moment ago, Normally, because this is the nature of ego, when ego is confronted with a threat to its survival, it always responds with either fight or flight. <coughs> Whether we are fighting or fleeing, it takes on the element or quality of resisting, running away or entering, engaging in a kind of fight with those difficult circumstances are rooted in and generated by fear. And when we are driven by fear, we get ill, we age quickly, we, can't, we don't have the clarity of mind to make the appropriate choices and decisions. I mean, time and time again, we are confronted, for example, with what we often call our bad habits, eating wrong, uh, putting into our bodies things that we know that will harm us, and so forth, not to mention the choices we make in relationships that are not sustainable and ultimately not fulfilling. 
So we find ourselves entrapped in this again. Ignorance, as the Buddha described it in the Second Noble Truth, and we find ourselves discontented no matter how many times we try to kind of fix our lives or, you know, find that one thing or one person or one event that will make us happy again. I have been convinced, and I do not recall a time when I have not been convinced, that the single solution to our discontentment, both individually as well as the solution to global crisis and suffering, which is fueled by the individual's insatiable discontentment and dissatisfaction, must be an awakening to, a rebirth to, a renewal of our awareness of our original nature, of who we truly are. And that is why the heart of the matter has to do with finding your true self. Who are you? And what really is the meaning and purpose for your life? And we can take a look at spirituality, religious philosophy, including Buddhism, as well as science, to get a clue as to what that path looks like, as to what that means is. And both in science and in religion, we find the means to be exactly the same. And it has to do with what Einstein wrote about when he talked about this from, again, the place of a scientist as well as a spiritual being. And these are his words. A human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for just a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And I want to begin with the end of his, his uh, statement about the path back. And when he wrote this, he was addressing how to resolve, how to bring you know, uh, answers to the global issue of discontentment and suffering in our world. And he begins by telling us that that matter, even though we may view it from a very linear position, seeing it as a global issue, is actually an individual issue. The world is made up of individual beings, individual human beings, parts of a whole. And that whole is only as good as its individual parts. That whole is informed by its individual parts. Now in his words, he is saying to us and pointing to us 
a kind of visual of the answer to the question, who are you? He says to us that each of us are actually parts of a larger reality, parts of a larger being. And even though we may be individual parts, each individual parts, as he went on to explain in quantum physics, each individual parts is that whole. It is not like the parts exist separate from, because if you were listening, he says to us that the delusion we find ourselves in, that amnesic state that the Buddha pointed to 2,700 years ago, he says to us, that is the delusion that you and I exist apart from the rest, that you and I are separate from the rest. Einstein says to us, as the Buddha did and all the masters continually reinforced down through the centuries, that the truth of our identity is found in awakening to our interconnectedness with the whole and all of its parts. Therefore, when we ask the question, for example, who am I? The answer to that question can only be found, realized in relationship to the rest and understanding that whole and its nature. Einstein says <laughs> that we are part of a whole we often refer to as universe. In Buddhism, Buddha nature. In faith-based traditions, perhaps God. Whatever metaphor you use, our reality and all the evidence shows, and again, by evidence I mean facts, that the universe is made up of parts, and each of those parts are interconnected, and yes, we'll get to this in a moment, interdependent upon each other, and that nature of interconnectedness and interdependence creates the whole. And at that moment of our lives that I talked about a few moments ago, when we fall kind of out of awareness of that reality, when we begin to experience ourselves as separated from the rest, that ignorance, as the Buddha defined it in the Second Noble Truth, is the cause of suffering. Living our lives as if that ignorance is fact. That is to say, living our lives in a way, and that includes the choices we make, <coughs> the decisions we make, the priorities we set up in our, our lives, our whole lifestyle living our lifestyle in a way as if we live and exist apart from the rest, separated from the rest. That condition, and it is a condition that we create. Often you've heard me talk about when I talk before university groups, graduates and high school graduates, I often say to them before I leave that you've been told over the years that your education has been a preparation for you to live in the real world. That is a lie. You have been prepared to live in the world man has created. That illusion of separateness, that illusion of apartness, is what we've created out of our ignorance. And so we find a world filled of these individual parts existing as if no other part of that whole matters existing as if there is no interdependence, 
that we can kind of live independently apart from the rest. That is what the Buddha called the cause of our suffering. When we get to the third noble truth and the teachings of Einstein and all of the great masters, as I said, if we listen to Einstein's words, he lays down a map, as all of the masters have done throughout the ages, for our way back. And when you listen to his words again, he says that this delusion of separateness becomes a kind of prison for us. By that, it restricts us from knowing our own personal fullness, as well as the fullness and wonder of the universe. You know, lately, and I'm, I'm sure some of you in this room have also had this, lately I've been noticing the heavens like I haven't noticed them in a long time. The beauty of the moon and the stars. And I take time when I'm captured, especially by their beauty, to really reflect on the fact that there is a whole gigantic, immeasurable reality existing apart from my complaints. Mm -hmm. I'm saying. And every time we find ourselves trapped in this prison that Einstein refers to, he says that it restricts us from knowing the whole truth, the fullness, which is everything's really under control. And everything is working. And in the end, all is well. But you cannot know that when you find yourself again limited or restricted to your personal desires. So again, when we take a look at the teachings of the masters in Zen, as well as all of Buddhism, as well as the many uh, great prophets of our time and messiahs and so forth, they all talk about this desiring. The Buddha especially spoke that desiring is the cause of suffering. Why? Because when we are in the mode of desiring, when we are in the state of wanting, wanting, wanting my life to be this way, we are operating from that delusion. We are operating from that amnesiac consciousness where we have forgotten that, <coughs> again, it's not just about my life. It never was just about my life. You know, often I say to my students over the years, ego got you here, but it will not keep you here. So we recognize these desires or this state of desiring and wanting and wanting and wanting as a kind of, we'll say for the moment, natural part of our existence. By natural, I mean when you look at our conditioning, both culturally and socially, it's unavoidable when you marry that to the fact that we forget our true nature somewhere early on in our life. So he says, not only do we find ourselves in this kind of emotional and psychological state of restriction from fullness and wholeness, or at least the experience of that, but we find ourselves also limited in our relationships, or more accurately, our relating to others. We find ourselves having affections for a few. And he goes on to say, our task to free ourselves from this prison, and that is what he's talking about, he says it, our task must be to free ourselves from this prison, and he goes on to explain how by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And another way that one might say that 
is by widening our awareness of each of those individual parts and the whole itself. And that is the work of spiritual practices such as authentic meditation and mindfulness. Again, I started out by saying that authentic spirituality is not a vacation, but a vocation. It is a calling to wake up from a lifetime of ego delusion. It is a calling to be reborn, not into someone new or something new, but reborn again, the person you were born as, the being you truly are. And as I said, at birth, we have an awareness of who we truly are, and we function from that awareness. And somewhere in the course of our lives, and this has happened to everyone born of a mother, somewhere in the course of our lives, we forget that and enter into this state of amnesia or delusion. Now, Mark Nepo's words to us tonight, again, goes a little further in his efforts to describe what is necessary. He uses the term embodiment, and I took the time to, again, look at the only real Bible you need in your life, and that's the dictionary. <laughs> and the dictionary defines embodiment as the act of embodying, which means to give a concrete form to express, personify, or exemplify in concrete form to give a concrete form to our expression. And when we talk about giving concrete form, we mean to, f to achieve an, a, a level of freedom for ourselves, whereby we are able to fully express ourselves, yes, fearlessly. A moment ago, if you've been listening, when we forget who we are, we enter not only into a state of ignorance, but the mind's way of dealing with that is we enter into also a state of fear. Whether you are aware of it or not, and this is where again the practices come in to play to help us be aware, much of our life is driven by fear. Now it may be very subtle in the sense that we may be concerned not to say something to someone to hurt their feelings. At least that's how we say it. What we really mean is I don't want to say anything that will hurt them that will upset me. You know saying? And that's really what we mean often when we think that way. So not telling the truth to our partners, not being honest with others about our needs, including about our wants, and so forth. To live at the level of full self-expression is a function of a Buddha, a fully realized person who is not concerned about, again, what I call the vote, other people's approval, or their acceptance. To live at the level of full self-expression is to understand that what is most important in this state of interconnectedness is that I am always communicating, which is the single most powerful tool of any sustainable relationship, the truth for me at the moment. What is really going on with me? He goes on to say, to personify. Again, Nepo says to us, the preface he used, I didn't read prior to the reading is, to know God without being godlike is like trying to swim without entering water. So, and in his reading, if you were listening again, 
he repeatedly talks about embodying freedom, embodying this. And again, to embody means to express it, to personify it, to make it a personal expression. And this is where you often hear me talk about authenticity. I am convinced and continue to be more and more convinced that the problems of our world are not going to be resolved until we get about the business of creating sacred spaces, community for each other, where all the individual members of that community can rise to the level of full self-expression, full personification of their true nature. This leads us all to the inescapable act of living out what we keep in, of expressing that innermost, deepest desire we have. When we forget who we are early on in our life, when we, when we choose to live as imposters, as a means to surviving the fear we find ourselves in, what is also lost in that are the artists, the great musicians, the scientists who will come up with the solution or cure for some disease, the real leader that we should have in Washington showing us the way. Greatness is also sacrificed in that moment. And this is what he is talking about when he says, this leads us all to the inescapable act of living out what is kept in or what we keep in hidden from others out of, fear, out of fear of disapproval, out of fear of, again, <coughs> uh, not being loved, not being appreciated, all of those things. And we learn that. Again, I often use the example, as funny as it may sound, that when we were infants, we weren't afraid, we were not embarrassed when we pooped our diapers. We were not embarrassed when we threw up on our parents or some other people. We were not embarrassed or, or regretful when we behaved in ways that annoyed them and woke them up at the middle of the night. We learned those emotional, emotional responses to life situations as we went on. Because again, if you've been listening, at the moment of our forgetfulness, at the moment that we begin to ignore our true identity, our true nature, we enter into a lifestyle that is driven by a singular interest to be liked, to be accepted, to be approved. Because early on, we are taught from early on in many different ways by multiple different sources that if you want people to like you and wanting people to like you seems to be the prize for everyone, you need to be, you have to act, you have to talk in this way. How's that been working for you? And we need to be serious about that question. How many times in your life have you had the experience of this kind of real joy, real joy, where you felt complete and well and whole? And I will ask you what was going on in that moment, and you really don't have to tell me because I can almost guarantee that what you will tell me is that in that moment, where you felt whole and complete and joyful, you were somehow involved in 
again, this state of doing what you love, maybe. Doing what made you feel whole and complete. And that's synonymous with what I'm talking about tonight. Living authentically from our true nature and who we really are is the source, the solution, and the means towards the happiness we all seek. Without full self-expression and without authenticity, none of that is possible. We continue to be, to continue to be dissatisfied and the world continues to live in a state of crisis. The world is in constant fear all the time. Think about it. Just listen to the news. Everywhere you go, people are concerned about what's going to happen. Mm. Saying. And this is the world that we have created. Nipo goes on to say, daring to breathe into our muscle and bone what we know and feel and believe again and again and again. There is this voice of embodiment that speaks beneath our discontent ever so quickly. And if we will listen to it, respond to it, and live by it, it will show us a way to be reborn. It will show us a way to be reborn. Now, what is that way? And again, all of the masters have shown the same path, have shown the same prescription. To live authentically, again, the Bible says, not false or copied, genuine, real, representing one's true nature, true to oneself. Representing one's true nature, true to oneself. So when we approach the question of identity, and I talk a great deal about a phrase I coined many years ago called the principle of identity. The principle of identity teaches us that when I am living honestly, true to my priorities, true to my code for life, that is the source of my power to meet life. That is the source of my fulfillment. So, again, how do we achieve that? How do we get back? How do we awaken to our nature? How do we become enlightened? And by becoming enlightened, I mean, again, aware of our original enlightened state. If Einstein's words are true, then the prescription says to us that each of us are a part of a larger reality. It goes then that understanding that reality, understanding its nature and its design purpose and how it functions can be a means back. In Japan, the Japanese culture calls nature, or synonymous with what they call nature, the great benefactor, is understood to, be, to mean that if you want to know God, look at nature. If you want to know God's thoughts, look at nature. Einstein also once wrote that all he desired was to know the thoughts of God. Everything else, he said, was simply details. And for him, it was his uh, you know, quantum physics path. But Einstein was also a spiritual being. And his spirituality 
was integral or integrated in his scientific life. So he, as a scientist, looked at the details of nature, just as the true pilgrim of spirituality seeks to know intimately the natural world. Zen has had since ancient times the tradition of integrating the natural world into their monasteries purposefully, integrating the various practices, practices such as Chanoyu, the Japanese tea ceremony, into the natural world and the natural world into it. You cannot be spiritual apart from nature. You cannot understand not only the universe, but yourself as well, because all the facts, all the evidence prove that you and I are a part of nature, that we share its same rhythms, and we share its same impermanent qualities, and so forth. Therefore, striving to understand how the forest is operating from moment to moment is essential in trying to understand how we need to operate from moment to moment. And one of the overwhelming qualities and characteristics of the forest, when you take a walk in the forest, and <coughs> you are open to learn from it, what is profoundly present about the forest is sometimes referred to as its ecological systems. When you take a look at those ecological systems, they are a active, living expression of interconnectedness and interdependency. The forest lives from the awareness that each individual part of the forest, whether we are talking about the great pine trees in the pine land down to the small weed on the lawn, is interconnected with the rest of the forest and contributes to the benefit of the whole forest. So when we attempt to find our way back, we must remember, and this is one of my oppositions to the culture of spirituality uh, in, in the West. Once again, when we use the spiritual practices, whether we're talking about meditation or yoga, just to somehow appease our egocentric discomfort and desires, we are not operating from authenticity. We are not operating from a place of interconnectedness. Our spirituality is, uh, again, not for ourselves alone. And that is where community is so essential. Being part of a community, bringing your gifts that you brought with you at birth to the community for the benefit of the community is a reflection that we find in the natural world as well. In the natural world, no part of that world takes more than it needs and always replenishes what it has taken by their behavior and by their living in harmony with the impermanency of the seasons and so forth. There is a natural awareness of interconnectedness that we humans exclusively bear, uh, bear the ability to even operate out of. And when we do, as we are witnessing now more than ever before, we not only harm ourselves, but we are killing the whole. And we are doing it so willingly that we must question the level of ignorance. 
Because if we kill the whole, again, we kill ourselves. You see. So in order to awaken to my true nature, in order to have this awakening, as it is talked about in both Zen and, and all of Buddhism, the path to that has to do with, again, embodying, in the words of Nepo and Einstein and all the masters, embodying these fundamental truths about our existence. Life is impermanent. We are interconnected and interdependent beings, parts of a whole called by us universe. Our individual part nature, if you will, or partness, does not separate us from the whole, but at the same time we are that whole reality. So again, just like the, the strength of, of, of a chain is dependent upon the strength of its individual links. We have not only a responsibility to ourselves to awake, but our awakening, our personal and individual rebirth is what we owe to everyone else. Any questions? Wednesday was Einstein's birthday. <laughs> First, you may ask questions. Um, four words I wanted to get your thoughts on how they're related. Self-expression, as in the form of the dog. Anarchy, code to live by, and conditioning. Because it seems to me that we, the idea is that if we were all self-expressive in an uncoded way, but is that conditioning? I mean, how does that relate to anarchy? Well, I think you answered, the, answered that piece for yourself, whether you knew it or not. You, you, first, you, you, know, you talked about expression. Then you just used the term self-expression. If I'm expressing my true self, mm -hmm. I cannot act without a code. I cannot engage in anarchy, if you will. So this true self, expression is what I'm talking about. When I'm expressing myself from that place of my true nature, not the self that I have become, that desires and wants, mm -hmm. resists and flees from. We're not talking about the self we think we should be or the self we have even become. We're talking about, again, one's Buddha nature. When the Buddha uttered those final words on his deathbed, Atadipa, rely on yourself. Some of his monks understood what he meant. He was saying, awaken to your Buddha nature and start and continue from there. Others thought he meant Joe Schmo from South Philly. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. I think I understand, but then in the case of an animal acting out its true nature, it's just doing what it does. It's just doing what it does, and the reason why we love them reason why we're attracted to puppies is the same reason why we're attracted to babies mm -hmm. because we are witnessing what we wish we could remember for ourselves. Everyone talks about, oh, if only. Mm -hmm. Not because that individual puppy has a unique cuteness to it, even though this one does, okay, <laughs> and so forth, or that individual baby is more beautiful than any other baby, but just like when, you know, we... we confront deer in our path and we are caused to stop and watch them or even the sunrise or sunset we are witnessing 
there's nothing pretentious there. There's no pretending to be. What you see is what you get. And that's where we all wish we could be. Everyone desires to be free of the fear of not being enough. And if we could eliminate that in our education system, our workplace, our communities, imagine what work could get done. Because most of the time we're preoccupied with protecting ourselves. Okay, Roshi, I, I'm not sure how I would see a room full of 30 children all acting out as if they were themselves. What kind of coordination and progress would well, the world be? Well, you're presuming that all or any part of that group of children haven't forgotten yet. Haven't forgotten. Right. Okay, I, I guess what I'm arguing is, is it necessary to have some of that conditioning in order to work as a group and make progress because it's a code that you have to conform around. Well, again, I think, I think, let me see if, if, if this discussion is being thwarted by semantics or not. What I'm talking about, for example, in Zen, as you well know, there is a necessity for discipline and a code of ethics. The Zendo etiquette, for example, okay? Mm -hmm. And just like in the tea ceremony, the person, the teacher trains the student in a disciplined way to create the environment, to make the bowl of tea, to serve it this way. Once the student has achieved a level of awareness of the spirit of that ceremony, then he or she is free to express themselves, perhaps by changing the environment this way or that way. I've been in the company of tea masters using coffee, for example. Okay? And <coughs> so, yet, yeah, if, if by conditioning, again, when we talk about conditioning, when I use the term conditioning, I'm talking about those lessons uh, in society that we learn to be concerned about not behaving this way or that way to lose the vote or gain the vote. Mm. Okay? That's what I'm talking about. If we're talking about, yes, in a room full of children, okay, that have forgotten or are on their way to forget because it happens to all of us. I'm watching it in Katie, for example, mm. happening. That's where the role of the parent, yes, is to inject into the environment discipline. Mm -hmm. Okay, with required conditions for behavior. Mm -hmm. Yes. But the purpose behind that is to not put the fear of God into my daughter's life. <laughs> okay? okay? The purpose behind that is to help her find herself in that. All of the great artists, every single one of them, whether we're talking about Picasso or Michelangelo, they all had a mentor or a teacher or a master who refused to allow them to act independent of that particular mode of art at that time, mm -hmm. okay? Until they created their great masterpiece. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think we're both saying the same thing. There is a period where discipline, if that's, you use the word conditioning, is necessary. But again, the aim of the discipline 
is to awaken us mm -hmm. to that level of full self-expression. And by self-expression, I mean our true self, our true nature, which I need to talk a little more about now because <coughs> when ego hears that, you know, it hears it to mean everything it's not. Okay? All right? Yeah. Thank you. So, for example, I asked you who you were. Now, I don't care what you said. You don't have to tell me because I'm going to tell you whatever it was, that's not it. Okay? The dog, if, you know, if we were able to get the dog to do anything else but bark, such as speak English, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> and we would possibly hear the dog uh, again say to us, or maybe not because perhaps language is part of the problem. Uh, in fact, in Zen, language is part of the problem because where I'm going with this, we can, we can know who we truly are. We can express it such as the artist with the brush or the hammer and chisel or the dancer such as in Tim Shaw's Sean's life and so forth we can express it perhaps in writing some kind of artistic creative way but the moment we call it anything we are back in the conditioning that is that prison Einstein talked about you know uh, Einstein described the, the quality of scientific discovery with one word. Does anyone know what that is? All. He said, I can know the thoughts of God, but don't ask me to tell you what they are. You see? And in Zen, again, the masters have said, you can know who you are. You can experience it within you, and you do. In those moments, as Nepo suggests, of crisis perhaps in your life, where you really felt, I've had it, I can't be who I am in this relationship, or I can't be who I am with my parents, or I can't be who I am, fill in the rest of the, of the sentence. In those moments, you have felt that deep desire and calling to express yourself in a way that possibly was completely unreasonable. I like what Nepo says in the beginning, which not only defines for me you know, our, dis our discussion tonight, but also defines spirituality. And this is the problem, again, I have with so many of the reasonable practices we see in our society today. Because Nepo says, there is a voice that calls to us beyond what is reasonable. Therefore, my knowledge of self exists in a domain where language will always come short. And thank God for that. Why? Because language requires definition. And the moment we define anything, according to the Bible, the moment we define anything, we have again restricted it to a fixed, limited perspective. To define anything means to fix the limits of it. The moment we do that. So what is required, and this is what the spiritual practices of the Buddha and the yogis and Jesus and the prophets and the mystics and the shamans is all about. What is required is for us to stop trying to resolve this for ourselves by reasonable means. By that I mean we cannot know ourselves through some cognitive effort on our part 
We cannot read about it, and I cannot tell you who or what that is. You can know it for yourself, and my role as the teacher is to just point the direction. You have to take the same journey I have to take in order to know that. And then that expression of that is known by the rest, by how? How it benefits the rest of the forest. Anything that does not benefit the forest is coming from a pretentious, unauthentic source. Because the universe is designed to work. It's not designed to fail. Abundance is its true nature. When we talk about such things as we're witnessing now that we don't have enough money to feed this group and we don't have enough money to help that group, that is a lie of great proportions and one we should never settle for. The evidence shows that the universe, one of the qualities of authenticity is abundance. You know, the story of Jesus and the loaves and fishes, they only had like a half a dozen of these things. What was the message there? That with a half a dozen, they were able to feed hundreds. There was a, what was the message there? In order to know the answer to that question, you need to step out of reasonable efforts to see it and figure it out. Because I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> During the era of the Buddha, did he ever attempt to be persuasive amongst the warlords of all the clans? None of them. And were these at all effective? He was effective with the people who opened their hearts and minds to learn for themselves, no one else. Uh, the role of the teacher is one of a seed planter. And again, I, I think of Jesus talking when he says, you know, the kingdom of God is like a seed. I throw it out. Some falls on stone. Some falls on fertile ground. Some falls among weeds. And that's none of my business. Okay. So that's why I hear him say, the poor you will always have with you because you will always have greedy people with you. You will always have people who refuse to wake up, refuse to see this. The people who hoard the, 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 the gifts and create the delusion of lack know there's abundance. They know it. They just refuse to let you share in it. And we need to stop making excuses for that behavior. It is what it is. And back to your question, in his time, he made no excuses for the warlords. He didn't bother even trying to convince them. Okay? Hi. Hello. <laughs> so good to see you. Yes, Roshi, with apologies to our Republican... Uh, members here tonight. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, uh, and I'm only bringing it up because you brought it up. I am pained and outraged by uh, a leader who is the antithesis of the teachings that you espouse. Um, Janet and I have gotten involved with some organizations to uh, do something rather than just be outraged. Uh, any advice you can give to me as I struggle with daily 
outrage at uh, the words and actions of our leader. Yeah. Um, and I've been writing about this on Facebook and some other sources. When we go back to uh, what Chico raised, this code, okay? You who are on the road, especially on the road uh, to try and make a difference in the world, uh, must have a code that you can live by. So I always come back to something that a very, very dear friend of mine, an 80-some-year-old nun that lives as if she's 18 and so forth, at lunch when I had gotten very sick with my heart and lungs situation. We had lunch together in the diner, and we were talking about some of this stuff. And she just looked up that to me from the table, and she said, Lord, she remember, we're not to be daunted by the suffering of the, in the world. And what she meant by that is, we need to do something about it, but don't let them get to you. Don't become like the Romans. Okay? So, again, that need to find time. This, this is all part of the spiritual practices. And this is where I, get, I do get frustrated, not with the opposition, but with the people in the battlefields. You cannot meet this battle efficiently, effectively, in any way, if you are not taking care of yourself in a way in order to go into the battlefield. Every soldier must retreat from the battlefield and use that period of time to replenish, to reinforce, to re-enter. Okay? So, meditation, uh, quiet retreat, lots of love. Got that covered. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, then you've got a big piece of it covered. Okay? Um, and time to laugh. And my father might suggest a bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> okay? So there is the balance. We can't, you know, it's like you got to turn off the TV. You got to turn off the news. You got to walk. You don't go to every rally, okay? Go to the ones you're prepared to go to and not lose your integrity in. And as angry as we can get, and I get angry when I hear, especially this last week or so, coming out of their mouths and the blatant disregard for who hears it and what they're saying. Uh, you cannot let that daunt you and change you to become like them. You cannot. And when I say them, I mean that level of consciousness and ignorance. Because all beings are Buddha. Believe it or not, he was born a Buddha. Okay? And somewhere along the line, Somebody darkened his eyes, okay, which probably was his father, mm -hmm. and so forth. So, but for me, it's turning off the news, watching only a certain amount of it at a time, uh, and and thinking about the love I have for the for you in this community, thinking about the love I have for my daughter. That's why I'm saying you need to return and retreat, and then go back out. Otherwise, it'll eat you up. And that's what they want to have happen. Because that, Chico says it all the time, ego is much bigger. And that ego of greed, power, and all of that, it's been around a long time. And it knows exactly what it's doing. 
and it knows how to make anyone not prepared fall. Thank you, Richard. Okay. Got to do the work of taking care of yourself if you're going to meet the battlefield. Richard, I'll also put in a pitch for the Zen Society, and this is an organization. Yeah, you got to become members I mean, here. If you want to become a member, or if you if you're already a member and you want to help, we were talking about setting up a phone tree to make sure that we get people out to certain events. So, I mean, there's things that we can do even here. But you got to become a member. You got to join. Stop just working on the edges. All right, thank you. Yeah, sorry, that's my sales pitch. But. <laughs> How are you? Okay. Um, I've studied even many uh, Chinese uh, masters and studied even a lot of uh, uh, Japanese uh, uh, masters. And usually the first thing they will tell us um, that they are not teachers, that they show us what they know, and that we ourselves are the teachers. So they, they actually, what you just had said, um, um, it's like we all we do have an inner knowledge, and what they're doing is only showing us what they know. And I've studied m most of the major healing teachers that I've studied from will never give themselves the credit of becoming a teacher. They always consider themselves. They show them show us what they know, and then it's up to us to teach ourselves. Thank you. Anyone else? Just, um, again, uh, the Dalai Lama was uh, being interviewed by uh, John Oliver last yeah, week. Great interview. It was just fabulous. And it, that's the kind of thing you know, hang on to, again, his, uh, you know, what the Chinese have done to him and how unbelievably gracious and dignified he is. And laughter, too. Right. And the great hearty laugh that he has. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that comes from a devotion to taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. The most important thing I have to offer my daughter is my happiness and well-being. Mm -hmm. The most important thing I have to offer students, each of you, is my ability to be here and do this. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, probably, and this was in Cinnamitsum when we were there, maybe it was Riverton, I can't remember. But Sumiko was here, she, she would remember, because she always reminds me. There was a woman that was coming, and um, she was courageous enough to reveal the fact that she was certified, certifiably nuts. And she was. She almost carried a certificate around with her. And she came regularly. And one night she probably stood up and gave the greatest compliment I've ever received from anyone. She said, I learned to trust this teacher, okay, when I looked on his calendar and saw Sacred Space Week. I knew he knew who he was because he knew he had to Retreat. Okay. So again, the practice of retreat, replenishing, and reinforcing that source within you is so essential if you're going to take on the matters of the world. Yeah. And you must have a code that you live by. And the code, again, must be what you live from and for. I often use the example of the samurai of Japan. To them, it was better to die than to violate the code. And in fact, to violate the code was death, if you will. So your principle of identity requires that you have principles that you have declared for yourself 
and in the company of others to be absolute. That I will not, you know, we say in, in Zen we have the four vows, and the first one is sentient beings are innumerable. I vow to love them all. Okay? And that is the code. That is the code. Mm -hmm. And so uh, living by a code and again living, embodying the practice, embodying the techniques uh, is all an integral part of uh, our ability or if we are ever going to make any change in the world. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? Hi. Hi. I have a um, friend who passed away, Phil, and when I would feel attacked by someone or feel threatened or upset by something that someone had done that affected me in some way, he would say to me, Lenny, you have to realize they're not doing something to you, they're doing something for themselves. And that's hard to think about because sometimes you think what they're doing for themselves is at your expense, that they're actually getting pleasure from making you suffer. Yeah. So that's why I try to wrap my mind around that, but yeah. that it's coming from something within them um, that has nothing to do with me. And that is true. You can take, and that's great wisdom. Your friend knew what she... No, Bill. Okay. What he was talking about. Yeah. Uh, that is true. You can flip that over and you know use it in many different examples, such as you know when we talk about this in relationships, when people are you know in relationship and they're bringing to the relationship their desire to be fulfilled in the relationship, they don't even see you. Okay, so when we often get offended by their behavior. Because again, ego translates that to be an assault or an offense. What we miss is exactly what your friend Bill said. That they're not, they don't even see you. You're not even part of the equation. These people making decisions now in Washington, they're not including the poor, the elderly, the sick in the equation. They don't even see them. How can you see suffering and not act for the benefit of suffering? I like that. Thank you. I'm going to use that. Your friend's dead? Yeah. So I don't have to worry about copyright. He was, you know, he read a lot and everything. Uh, Who knows where he learned it? Yeah. I don't think he invented it. No one teasing you. <laughs> That's my fun. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. I agree with Lenny. I've always looked at it in terms of it's when something, somebody something it's never about me it's always about that but when <laughs> then you flip that around and you go then what can I do about that and I guess and what do you mean by is, about that about that what do you mean if about it's that? someone important in your life let's say it's your sister <laughs> <laughs> is that who she's talking about <laughs> <laughs> and they are doing things and I can look at it and say this really is about them it, this has really Go ahead. this has nothing to do with the door oh, 
He's trying to stay warm. Slide the door. Huh? Oh, no, I'm not. His hands are oh, okay. like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Close it anyway. <laughs> so I can look at it and say, this, this is not who I am. Whatever they're doing has nothing to do with me, and they're not really even seeing me. And you can say the same thing about Trump and all the people surrounding him. They're not seeing the poor, the sick, the elderly, whatever, whatever crap they're doing at this point. <laughs> What do you do? Is there anything to do about that? Because you can't make people see. You can't force them. So I'll answer your question, short version and the long version. The short version is no. There's nothing you can do, and there's nothing to do. Because the desire to try to change them is coming from an egoistic perspective. It's coming from that place of fear. Again, if you've been listening tonight and all the other times, when you awaken to your true nature, your true nature does not require the vote of anyone. That dog in the other room does not care if I like if she's barking or not. Doesn't even think of it a moment. When she first came home and she was peeing and pooping everywhere, she didn't get to care about that. If she did, she wouldn't have pee peed or pooped. You see? She was just doing what she does and what have you. My job, if I want to be in relationship with her, was to learn how to live my life with a dog that has finally stopped, but was initially peeing and pooping all over my territory. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Which sometimes that's how it feels with relatives and friends, when they're asking. <laughs> okay, they're marking their territory, okay? And that's all they're doing. That's all they're doing is marking their territory. The simplest way is to have no territory. <laughs> to be free of boundaries, you know, is the simplest way to deal with it. <clears throat> to be free of boundaries. Yeah. To be free of boundaries. As opposed to have a boundary and yeah. say, right. you will not treat me yeah. this way. To be free of boundaries. Which means that, again, keeping in proper perspective that their behavior has nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. The only way Jesus could suggest forgive, you know, 70 times 70 was because he was aware of that fact. You know, forgive them for their behavior has nothing to do with me, is what he said on the cross. But then taking it at a macro level, when you look at the president and all the people surrounding him, their behavior and why they do. We have to stay away from the personal behavior and deal with the issue. Oppose the policies, not the person. We have to oppose the policies, and we have a means of getting the job done as long as we stay out of the personality, <coughs> and it's called the vote. Okay? It's called the vote. And I made a personal commitment just the other day to be involved. I get the word out if anybody needs a ride to the polls in November 2018. My car is available. If the millions of people, I said this the other day to someone, if the millions of people we've seen on the streets protesting vote in November, problem solved. Yeah. So we have a means to oppose what we are opposing. If we're only opposing their personality, we've lost the battle already. But if we're opposing not taking care of the poor, not taking care of the elderly, not taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. 
if we're opposing an increase in threat to more wars in the world again and again, we have a means towards achieving that, and it's called the vote. Okay? It's called the vote. But you're right. You're never going to change your sisters. We're never going to change Donald Trump's personality, and that's not the business of a truly evolved and awakened being. Back to what Vince asked me earlier. You know, the Buddha went on and taught until he died at the age of 46 and never let the attitudes of the warlords and his oppositional Brahmin, the Brahmins of India and all disturb him. He did his thing. Okay? Thank you. We're going to break you of that yet. You keep coming back to that. <laughs> just, just briefly, Roshi, the other thing, there's an article I read that's very interesting that Trump's background in reality TV actually gives him an edge in that sort of environment that you're talking about, the personality one. So stay away from that. He's, yeah. It's, yeah, he's mastered that. He's a master that. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. he's, he's mastered that. I mean, he's living, he's living in front of a camera. Yeah. That's, that's his reality. Rookie, may I speak? Yes. But our, our local Congress people are up for a vote, too at a much more frequent level. So they should be getting an earful from everybody if they're opposed to certain policies because they want to stay in office. Yeah, I think that what happens when we find ourselves caught up in the emotion of you know, their behavior, uh, it can, uh, again, take away the clarity of what can be done and needs to be done. So in order to maintain clarity, we can't be daunted. We can't find ourselves. That's why I say, if you're watching the news and you're starting to get like this, turn it off. Mm -hmm. Switch the channel to some music. You know, take a breath. Come back to your center and get about the business of making a change. We can't be calling them names while they're calling us names. Um, also, I, uh, I, regarding the issues, I call once a week my three representatives who happen to be all Democrats, so it's kind of easy. But I also call and thank them when they're doing, and I know they're working hard. And, and, the, and again, that's relationship, mm -hmm. okay? That's relationship. Yes, we acknowledge the good stuff as much as we complain about the mistakes and mm -hmm. the bad stuff. That's relationship. Mm -hmm. It's also smart business. You know, they'll listen to you if they know that you're not just yelling at them. Right. Yeah. Hi. Um, you know, I'm hoping that something good will come out of all of this. And, oh, um, it w something good will come. Yeah, and I already saw something good coming out of it, actually, in my, in my household. Um, my, my daughter, the other day, Yuri and I, um, actually, after I, I got home on Wednesday, after being here, uh, we started to talk about about saying this is something you know for me as I said, and um, you know she said that that when Trump took presidency uh, really affected her, and um, she actually started to read on her own a book that it's called The Buddha in My Backpack mm -hmm. because she feels that you know she she needs to work on herself, mm. um, and you know one of the things that we told her was you 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 might have to be too to become more involved too. And you know, I, I want to do that for them too, for my daughters. Um, because I want them to, to to feel that they can 
in a way um, into a good place mm -hmm. and uh, feel powerless Mm -hmm. victim, victimized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In line with that, I was talking on the phone with Matsumiko, who's in Florida. Uh, we were talking about this, and she was sharing with me, she was out to lunch with some friends of hers, and she said, you know, we get caught up, as we were saying, so often and so easily in the emotion of this whole thing that we wonder if any good can come out of it. And her friend is a world traveler, and she, and she reported to Matsumiko that good is coming out of it because not only people around the world, but similar to the example you just shared, people are finally reading about how government works <laughs> and people around the world are impressed by the fact that he's not a dictator because the courts are preventing him from doing what he wants to do and they're getting to see what a real democracy looks like. You know, and that's the problem again. You know, I was talking in, in our conversation, I said to Mary, and that's the problem. Uh, I wonder how many people in this room understand that the three branches of government are equal branches of government. He cannot act on his own any more than Congress can act on their own or the courts act on their own. They are equal. So we often, you know, place the President of the United States as the Lord God of the, of the kingdom up here. But a senator has as much to say and authority as he does and can stop him from doing what he's doing. And he has his powers and so forth, and we forget that. So what the conversation turned out is that in, in this country, people are finally reading what is maybe not even being taught in schools anymore and learning about this, and nations around the world watching this insanity over here after they've done scratching their head and thinking what the you know is happening to america are impressed to see so that's how it works over there there's hope yeah and i think she feels like she deals with it on a daily basis because she goes to a school where there's a lot of transporters so she hears the things that they say and it really hurts her so i think she needed to find something yeah. to kind of like be able to cope with it in a way that you know, her emotions don't take her down yeah. and, and don't take the best away from her. And that's where, again, we need to act responsibly on, in this time. We can't just get angry and mad and, and call. We need to act responsibly. And part of responsibility that I have in any relationship is to do the work to keep myself strong and acting from clarity rather than emotions. And that's another area that I'm working a lot too. Like, I, you know, I come from a tradition where you, you take care of everybody else first, and then you know that's what I learned. And then you 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 come last. So that's an area that I'm shifting. That I you know I, I have been able it's to. It's called balance. Yes. And you can't do anything out of balance. Mm -hmm. Exactly, because I have to be well. I have to be with my mind clear and healthy in order to be able to do no. all the things that I have to do. Yeah, as I said, as, as a parent, the most important thing I have to give my child is not my affection, not my you know, wisdom of, of life and my experience, but my own happiness and well-being. When our children see us happy and well, they know what to do. They fall in line. What if that's true about everybody else? And I think it is. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Been a long time. Welcome yeah. back. <laughs> back. I think. Um, Try staying. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I 
especially now I think I need to. <laughs> now don't do it because you need to, do it because I told you. <laughs> if you do it because you need to, what happens is when that need gets filled, you're gone again. <laughs> That's true. Now, I haven't been, been the same since the election, but um, I mean, I, I have every, every day I'm waking up not feeling something's wrong. I feel something's wrong every day, but as, as far as something good I have seen, uh, when I went to my first protest, I, I've become an overnight activist like a lot of us. You know, I've, I know, you know who senators are, Congress people, all these things. You know, it's amazing what, what you learn in this time. But um, when I went to the Martin Luther King um, protest, which was the first one I went to, I really saw something there when everybody was on stage, the different people were speaking, and there was a rabbi, there was Black Lives Matter, there was, you know, a representative from um, an LBGQ group, and what this pastor, um, who was a black pastor from the church that kind of put this on, he um, said to everybody, you know, we've got to take care of each other, and including immigrants and uh, Muslims and the Mexican people who were spoken about in such a horrible way. And he said, it's not just one group anymore. We all have to take care of each other. And what I've seen since is a lot of that, and especially at the protests and at the groups. People are coming together. And I don't know if it's enough to fight him, but there's been a lot of victories, small victories, um, that I've seen through this journey, you know, with two Muslim bans overturned and, you know, some other things too. And I think the people coming together, in a way I've, I've, I haven't really seen before. Maybe that's something good that in the end can win out. And also I think just anything you wanted you want to go further and do. I, I work with an immigrants group called New Sanctuary Movement in Philadelphia. And there's a lot of reaching out you can do. And something I heard recently was um, somebody said, you know, go talk to a Muslim person mm -hmm. in their mosque or, you know, reach out mm -hmm. and see people for who they are. and. I hope of anything, maybe it's that universal love will win out, but there's a lot of coming together that I've seen. And again, as I suggested to you personally a moment ago, my concern is that that coming together is rooted in something more than a current need, okay? Because we'll come together like we did on 9-11 to help, and then so many just forget that afterwards. And what sustains that, again, comes back to what I've been talking about. Each of us individually cultivating the ground to become more aware of that voice underneath all of our understanding of what needs to be done. The quiet is essential. The quiet is where we get to hear that voice that is crowded out and you know and and pushed down by all the noise uh 
when I'm often asked, you know, 42 years it has been for me now, um, and I'm often asked, you know, what is it I like to do the best? It's the early dawn sitting. And you often hear me, you know, say things like, well, nobody comes. And lately I've noticed that I'm sitting hoping nobody comes. <laughs> <laughs> and because for me it's becoming quieter and quieter. And that is where I find refuge. I find refuge in getting quiet because that is where we hear the voice. And I, I worry that, again, if the crowds that we see and all of that is a wonderful thing. You know, everything we've mentioned tonight, people taking time to learn about the government, people calling, like you said. I mean, those, I mean, we usually know we got people in Congress and that's it. All of that is a wonderful thing. But again, if it's not rooted in making a real change within ourselves, changing that person who never called their congressman in the past, never even considered going to a mosque. You know, talk about conditioning. I mean, I grew up in the Catholic Church in the time where you had to bless yourself passing a synagogue. You know, remember that? <laughs> you know, where if you stepped into a synagogue, you were convinced that God was going to shoot you with, dead with lightning and what have you. So, uh, you know, all of that is important. And if we can get back to it for a moment before we close tonight, this path to, again, this discovering oneself is the means that, you know, Howard <coughs> asked about moments ago and we have been talking about since then. And that is the path is your personal, individual commitment and code to be committed to your own personal cultivation of the ground and the nurturing of that voice within you so that it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer that you can hear it everywhere you go, and not just in the silence, but you must begin in the silence. And not only the silence that is achieved on the cushion with serious meditation training, but the silence in learning how to, where'd she go? Where's Nancy? Learning how to be quiet, not worrying about your sisters and their behavior with you. Learning how to, even though you know you have the right answer, maybe not offering it. You know, because what happens on the cushion is that you become, as Dogen Zenji said, another Zen master and great teacher, what happened on the cushion is that, as he said, you get familiar with ego in a way that you know that you are able to know the difference, which is what mindfulness practice is really about. Mindfulness practice is about becoming so keenly aware that what's motivating me now is ego or not. And the way you become intimately familiar with ego and how it's operating with you is in the silence on the cushion. Because ego, while you're on the cushion, is banging and making noise and you get really familiar with what it looks like and sounds like and smells like. And you know when it is better to be quiet than maybe to speak. And then you learn how to speak in ways that are healing and helpful rather than just hurtful and harmful. And that all comes from the quietness of the cushion. And that is why back to Chico's uh, efforts a moment ago, you need to become a member of this community and get into training with us. Did I do that right, Chico? Yes, sir. Thank you. I'm just taking notes on profound thoughts. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else?
Well, as always, thank you for coming out tonight. I know it was cold and wet. I was saying to someone the other day uh, at, at her place of business, she was talk, asking me some things, and I said to her, well, you know, in America, usually I have to send out a limousine, and when they're meditating on the cushion, go around and massage their shoulders, then they'll think about enlightenment. <laughs> so, but, so thank you for coming out without all of that. We have a few events coming up in April that we'd like you to participate in and you would like that you did when you do and that is the beginning of our third offering of A Course in Spirituality that will begin on Wednesday, April 5th and information about that course is on the website. It's a three-month training course uh, and again the details about it is on the website and for those of you with children or those of you with nephews and nieces and family uh, on April 30th we will have our very first and hope to build it into uh, a regular family event here called Family Zen and that's Sunday April 30th at 9.30 to 11.30 you uh, come with your children the children will be uh, 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 cared for in taught meditation and mindfulness in one area of the monastery while the parents and I work on dealing with being parents uh, and so forth. Meditation and mindfulness for the whole family and that's on the website also you can look into that and keep coming out for Zen Chat. Next month Rabbi Simon will be joining me and in May Rabbi Simon and my old friend Deacon Jim Costa from Sacred Heart as the rabbi has called it we're getting the band back together <laughs> and the three of us will be here talking more about how to deal with the current events in our nation and around the world from a spiritual practice of Judaism, Christianity, and Buddhism. So visit the website. Everything's on the website. Become a member tonight, and, uh, and I'll see you uh, next time. Roshan, did I cover everything? Yes, you did, Roshan. I was going to also just plant a seed since you're going out as far as May, especially members. We'd really like to have you here for Jukai, and that's yes. in mid-May. Jukai? Jukai is uh, three and... Let's see, there's one here tonight. Yeah, three uh, members will be receiving the precepts and be initiated into the lay monastic community of the monastery, and that is May 13th, I think. May 13th in the afternoon. It's a very beautiful ordination ceremony. Come out and see uh, that with us, and you know, just express your support of those who are working hard for that to happen. And in December, after the rabbi goes through Jakai on May 13th, we are going to ordain our first rabbi here. <laughs> so, see, we are an integrated, inclusive group of people. Many people that have a harder time getting in are the Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> but we welcome No, we welcome, we welcome all. We welcome all. We do. Chico will be at the door to welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, please rise.
Permit me to respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.